So I brought with me a uh, sampling of some of the Bibles that I have. This is not all of them by any means, and there's kind of a variety of them. There are New Testaments, there are, you know, they never just print the Old Testament. Have you noticed that? It's, it's, it's either the New Testament or the whole thing. But, uh, you know, I have different versions here. This is the Jerusalem Bible, which is typically used in the Catholic Church. This is a, a study Bible, a life application Bible. It's kind of heavy, actually. It's a lot to it. Um, the King James, and they always put this in black. I don't know why that is, but it seems like every King James Bible I've ever seen is in black. Uh, I have a Hebrew Bible, Old Testament, a Greek New Testament. Uh, this is an interesting one, The Life of Christ in Stereo. This is a, a, a book that takes the four Gospels and merges them all into one story so that you read the whole thing. And it marks where each of the things come from, but it kind of gives you, you can read the Gospel in one sitting. Uh, this one tells you the era. You can probably guess when this was printed just by looking at the cover. It looks like the 1970s, doesn't it? You can see that. And uh, the Jesus people, New Testament. Um, this is an interesting one. It's called the Reader's Digest Bible. It's the condensed version of the scriptures. I'm not kidding you. It is. It says right there, Reader's Digest Bible. This, it was a great idea to begin with. If you know about, about uh, biblical translations, Bruce Metzger was the editor of this. So, I mean, he's, you know, he knows what he's doing. But the, the whole point was that maybe if they put the scriptures into a more of a novel type format, people would read it more. And um, it didn't catch on. Uh, so I'm probably one of the few people that even owns one of those, but uh, it's kind of an interesting thing. And I, this, this is the most precious Bible that I have. It's a little New Testament. It's kind of delicate. And there's a note inside. It says, Dear Wesley, this little testament was given me by my grandma when I was a little girl, probably eight or ten years old. So now I will pass it on to you as a keepsake. I used to carry it to Sunday school. Love from Great Grandma Dingman, April 18, 1968. Now, my grandmother was born in about 1890, so this Bible's probably 110, 15 years old. And... Um, I don't, I have it in my office on my shelf. I don't use it a lot because it is so fragile and also because the print's so small I can hardly read it anymore. But, you know, it's one of those things that I keep in front of me to remind me of the blessing of my heritage. And, you know, what, the, what God gave to me. I also have this Bible that I bought in college. I used it all through my time in college and it is a well-worn Bible. This is the kind of Bible that if I know what the preacher is preaching about, that's the only section I have to take with me. You know, I just pick up, it's Samuel, that's what I want. You're doing John this week? Okay, I'll just take John with me this week and that's all I'll do. There's not a part of this that's still connected to the binding. Um, and, and, you know, this is the book that, you know, you just figure out what you need and you take that little bit with you and you leave the rest home. I was thinking about that and... Quite frankly, it is symbolic of how a lot of people treat the scriptures. We tend to say the part of the scripture I like, the part of the scripture that I understand, that resonates with me, I read that. The rest of it, eh, not so much. I think it's one of the reasons why we, we don't make it often through reading the Bible in a whole year. 
You know, we start out in Genesis. Hey, that's great. I mean, quite frankly, Genesis has got some pretty interesting stories. Um, some of it feels like you're watching a Lifetime movie network, something. I mean, these are some, you know, we probably shouldn't even tell our children half of these stories in the book of Genesis. But, you know, you, get, you do that, you read through it, you get into Exodus, that's kind of exciting with the, you know, bringing them out of Egypt. And then you start getting into the laws. And you're starting to slow down. And then you get to Leviticus and the sacrifices and you feel yourself slowing down even more. And Deuteronomy and Numbers and you keep thinking, boy. And then you get to First Chronicles and the first nine chapters are nothing but so-and-so begat so-and-so. And they begat so-and-so and they begat so-and-so. No wonder people give up. But the problem is, if all we read is the part that we like and the part that we know... And the part that makes sense to us and the part that, you know, we can grasp, then we miss so much of what God wants to say to us. And often people have taken the scriptures and they have cut them apart like that. There is a, there's, there's always been people who have attacked the scriptures and the authority and the reliability of the scriptures. In the last 300 years or so, that has heightened a lot. And people have said, well, that can't be true because I don't believe that God would do that or I don't believe that could happen. And, you know, Thomas Jefferson took the Bible. He cut out everything that was related to the supernatural. He didn't have much left, I got to tell you. Uh, And and people have done that and, and they've attacked the scriptures and the reliability of the scriptures and the truth of the scriptures. And the response to that has often been to close ranks and to start boxing in the scriptures. And, and instead of just sitting down and, and, and having dialogue, and instead of saying, well, you know, people have their opinion, but I know it's the word of God, we want to defend and fight. And so we create ways of describing the scriptures that, quite frankly, sometimes are untenable. There are, there are you know, ways of describing the scriptures where we say there is absolutely nothing in the scriptures that could be said wrong that wouldn't mesh with everything we believe today. Well, that's not possible because people wrote centuries ago and they didn't understand things the way we understand them now. The implication in the ancient scriptures as you read it is maybe that the earth is flat. The implication is the sun rises. And we know that's not the case. And yet... Sometimes we get backed into a corner and we have to even defend that. And the reality is, instead of defending the scriptures, instead of taking stands that are untenable, we take the stand that the scripture says. The scripture tells us basically one thing, that the the word of God, the Bible, the scriptures we have are inspired by God. Peter writes in his second letter, That everything the prophets said came from the mouth of God. Everything. Paul takes that a step further when he writes to Timothy and says, All scripture is God-breathed. All scripture is inspired by God. All of it comes from God. And yes, God uses human beings to write it. He allows human beings to use their personalities, what they know about things, their culture, their, their world. He uses, lets them use all of that to write it, to make it real and true. But it's still the word of God. It's inspired by the spirit. It is breathed. Life is breathed into it by the spirit. It is the word of God. I think it's important 
for us to make sure that we take that stand about Scripture. That we say what Scripture says. It's the inspired Word of God. It is reliable. It is true. And are there things in the Scripture that we would say, well, now we know thousands of years later that that's not the way we would describe it? Of course. Does that diminish the truth and the reliability and the inspiration of God's Word? No. It doesn't seem to bother God. Because if God is the Almighty One, as we believe He is, and if the Word is inspired by God, as we believe it is, then God has given us the Scripture that He wants us to have. And quite frankly, it's kind of messy sometimes. One of the questions that was asked as you responded about things you would like to hear sermons about, one of the questions was, what do we really know? What makes this, this Bible different as a religious literature from all the other cultures in their religious literature? Now, one of the fastest ways to see the difference is to sit down and compare them. Because what you find in virtually all of the, of the other religious literature is a completely different perspective than you get in the Bible. It, it's, it's, you know, if we were to write the scripture, quite frankly, if we were, someone said to us, all right, write a Bible that will tell people, that will encourage people to want to be followers of God, I, I am quite certain we would not write that. Because there is a lot in here that confuses us. A lot of things in here that quite frankly embarrasses us. You know, in fact, if we went through the scripture and said, let's write it the way we would, we would change all kinds of things. We would probably have some people live longer. Maybe a few people die sooner. We, we would probably uh, think uh, in terms of Jesus, we would want him to start his ministry earlier and end it much later. We would probably not write what Paul wrote to Timothy and said, if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, you're going to be persecuted. Let's take that out. We'd probably change some of the teachings of Jesus. I mean, he's pretty hard on the rich and the religious, and that sort of hits home with us compared to the rest of the world, right? And we'd have to do something about all the wine that's mentioned in the Bible. We've got to get rid of that, because that's just hard to deal with, right? One of the things that I've always felt makes the Bible unique is that God isn't afraid of the messiness. God isn't afraid to, to have things in the scriptures that maybe we can't comprehend. And the truth of the matter is, if you're going to read the scripture, if you believe it's the word of God, at some point you have to be comfortable with paradox. Because more and more, as I get older and I study the scripture and I think about the scripture, I think that the majority of what we believe, the important things about what we believe, have to be held in tension. They're both true. God is fully sovereign. Human beings are fully responsible. Seemingly opposites, and yet the scripture teaches both. Jesus is fully God. Jesus is fully human. Opposites, and yet the scripture teaches both. And the reality is, if we came, come to the place where we understand everything about Scripture perfectly, then we are God. And Scripture 
includes the mysterious nature of God. He has revealed so much of himself to us, but there is still so much more to learn, to understand. When I read the scriptures, one of the reasons why I think the scriptures are, are true is the way it presents God's heroes. Again, we wouldn't write it that way. We'd write about Noah and the ark and the flood, but we wouldn't include that last story about Noah getting drunk and pretty seamy episode. We'd write about Abraham being a follower of God, being a special person to God, but we certainly would leave out the times when Abraham is so full of doubt that he puts Sarah's life in jeopardy because he doesn't trust God. And with David, my goodness, there's a number of stories we leave out about his life, right? I mean, in one fell swoop, he basically breaks all the Ten Commandments. And this is the one about whom it said, he had a heart, his heart was God's own, he was a man after God's own heart. What we find in the scriptures is real people living real lives Struggling with real stuff just like us. And for me, that gives great credibility to the scriptures. You read a lot of, of, of religious literature and, and people are, are created in a way that they think they're, they're not even human. But you read the scriptures and it's human all over the place. Far more than we would like. Certainly more than we would want. But it's real. And that realness, that reality, to me says, this is true. It's not trying to hide anything from us. This is real people living real lives with real stuff. God isn't afraid of the fact that that might confuse us. God isn't afraid of the fact that that might make us embarrassed. And it doesn't seem to bother God because he... Make sure we have it. And so at some point we stop and say, okay, I don't understand that. I wish that weren't there, but it is. And so there must be something of God in it. Something God's trying to say to us through it. And that really is the point, isn't it? The real question is not, do I believe that the Bible is true? Because that's a a question of faith. Because people will tell us, well, that's not right, that's not right. At some point, we have to decide we're going to believe it is the inspired word of God or not. But the real point of God giving us the scriptures is that it's to transform us. It's not to club people over the head so that they do what we want them to do, it is so that we we have the truth about what it means to live as God's agents of his kingdom on earth, as it is in heaven. What is it? Paul writes to Timothy, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that every servant of God will be fully equipped to do good work. There is a a theory that Brian Chappell has formulated. He's the president of Covenant Seminary in St. Louis. He calls the fallen condition focus. It's one of the things as I'm working on sermons, I look for every time. Because he says, every passage of scripture is addressing something of our fallen condition. 
Something in us is broken. You remember we talked a couple of weeks ago, if you were here, about how we, we have damaged receptors. God's message to us, his word to us is perfect. But because of sin, our sin, the sin of others, the sin of living in a fallen, broken, sinful world, our receptors to understand God's message are twisted and turned and skewed and broken. And so we don't hear God correctly. And the scriptures are given to clarify what our sin distorts. And every passage of scripture has the, one of the purposes of it is to clarify things that are distorted in us. It might be ignorance, something we need to learn. It might be addressing something of our sin. It might be places where we need encouragement because we are discouraged. It might be hope because we're despairing. But every passage of scripture in one way or another is addressing something about our fallen condition. Scripture's intent is to transform us. It is the word of God to us to change us, to make us new, to turn us from our sinful ways to God. What is it David writes in Psalm 119? Your word have I hid in my heart. He doesn't just stop there. Your word have I hid in my heart so that I might not sin against you. So that I might be a changed person. I embrace your word. I immerse myself in your word so that I might be a new person through the spirit. And that means that it's less about proving the reliability of scripture. But rather surrendering in obedience to the authority of God. I often think back to what Mark Twain said. He said, some people get really nervous and anxious about the parts of Scripture that they don't understand. He said, for me, it's the parts of the Scripture I do understand that make me really nervous and anxious. I'm convinced if we just simply surrendered in obedience to the parts of Scripture that we know and are clear, we would be different people and the world would be a different place. Our problem is not nearly so much trying to convince ourselves or others that the scriptures are true. Our problem is doing what it says. Rick Warren says that Saddleback, they have a, they have a saying, a slogan. It says, you only believe parts of the parts of the scripture that you do. I would amend that just a little bit to say you only believe the parts of the scripture that you surrender to in obedience to God's authority. And that means that we, the attitude in which we come to Scripture is so vital, so important. Do we come in a spirit of humility or arrogance? Do we come saying, God, what do you want to say to me? What do you want to show me? How do you want to use the Scripture to speak into my life? Or do we come to Scripture and say, so God, prove yourself to me? I don't really think you could do anything with me. I don't think you have anything to say to me. It's humility that leads us to spiritual growth. Arrogance leads us down different paths. 
And there is this sense of, in that humility, that we come in a spirit of expectation that God is indeed going to speak into our lives through his word. You know, sometimes I think that we, we have this view of scripture where we study and we read maybe because we feel like we have to. You know, it's an, it's an expectation and there's this little bit of a sense of drudgery and we come to scripture thinking, well, I don't know if God has anything to say to me. We read because we have to. And then we say, well, I'm not getting anything out of it. God's not saying anything to me. Really? That shouldn't surprise us. Rather, we ought to come and pray, Lord, I I know you're going to say something to me. I'm expecting you to speak into my life. Will Willimon said the reason people don't get the scripture is not because it's old. It's because our minds are too small. Too narrow. Too limited. We don't have a spirit of expectation. And if we come in a spirit of humility and expectation, what happens is the scriptures actually become delight to us. They're joyful to us. The first psalm, very beginning of Psalm 1 says, Blessed are those whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditate on his law day and night. There is a delight in coming to the scriptures, in spending time in God's word, in studying the word. And and I think when we come with that kind of mindset, we experience those aha moments in which we say, oh, I never saw that before. Sometimes we get convicted. Sometimes we, the, we are challenged. But even that we see as joyful because we know God is doing that in our best interests. To make us more and more the people he created us to be. Psalm 119, verse 14. The writer says, I delight in your law like I delight in the riches. Would we get just as excited about reading the word as we would if somebody handed us a couple million dollars? Hopefully more. Paul says to the Romans, the word of God, the scriptures are given to encourage you and to give you hope. It is in the scriptures that we find God's word of hope to us. It's in the scriptures that we find how God feels about us. The little children saying, Jesus loves me, this I know. How do we know? Because the Bible tells us. It's one of the simplest things we could ever sing, and yet it's so profound. How do we know anything about God? Because the scriptures tell us. How do we know anything about how God feels about us? Because the scriptures tell us. How do we know anything about what God is, is asking of us and how God cares for us and leads us down paths that are the very best for us? Because Scripture tells us. And we need to keep seeing it. That's why at the end of every Scripture reading, the reader says, this is the word of the Lord, and we respond saying, thanks be to God. Now, I guarantee you there are some Sundays that we read a passage of Scripture and you're thinking, huh, thanks be to God for that one? Really? I feel that way sometimes. And I want to say yes. All of it is God's gift to us. 
Every passage of Scripture is God's gift to us. We might not understand it. It might make us nervous or anxious. But it is all God's gift to us for which we give thanks to him. About 30 years ago, Bishop Desmond Tutu was speaking to the World Methodist Conference. This was before the falling of apartheid in South Africa. And he was telling about, he said, when the whites first came to South Africa, the the blacks had the land and and the white people had the Bible. And he said, then the white people wanted to teach the black people how to pray. And when they opened their eyes, the white people had the land and the black people had the Bible. And he held up his Bible and he kissed it so tenderly. And he said, we shall see who got the better end of that deal. And time and history has proven he was right. You know, I I don't know about you, but I'm not big on reading post-apocalyptic literature, novels. That's not my favorite genre. I like reading novels, but that's, I don't really care for that post-apocalyptic perspective, you know, where the world has fallen apart and everything is crazy. And uh, Maybe you like that literature, but that's never been my favorite. Until a couple of years ago when my nephew published a novel that was set in post-apocalyptic times. He sent it to me and I read it. And actually, I liked it. He published a second book, and I, it's a trilogy he's written, and I read it, and it was good. And I was thinking about what made the difference, because quite frankly, I had no interest in reading post-apocalyptic literature. The difference was because I had a relationship with the author. And that makes all the difference in the world about reading the Scripture. Because we have a relationship with the author. We might not understand everything that the author does. We might not understand everything that the author says. But if we have a relationship with the author, what he writes becomes important to us. And changes us and works in us. And it creates a completely different perspective about life for us. And we begin to understand that the scriptures, all of the scriptures... Are God's gift to us as His inspired word to change us. For many years, Emil Kaye was a professor at Princeton University. In his book, Journey into Light, he tells about his journey to faith. He was raised in a very naturalistic home in France. No Nothing religious, nothing about God. But he, he was absorbed in the, the current culture of that day, that progressive mindset that everything in the world was getting better and better. That's that naturalistic perspective that if we just work hard enough, if we just wait long enough, everything in the world is just going to continue to get better. Industrial revolution was making life easier for people. And they were watching everything develop. And the world was getting better and better and better. Until he was drafted into the army and lived in the trenches of the First World War. And the mud and the blood and the death shattered that illusion. 
He was injured in the war and he went to a hospital to recover. And while convalescing, he met a young woman who was a nurse and was taking care of him. And they fell in love and they got married. And on the night of their wedding, he said to her, I want you to promise me one thing. That you will never speak about religion to me or in our home. And she promised. He enrolled at the University of Paris. And um, as a part of his, his education and his life there as a student, he began keeping a notebook in which he wrote down things that spoke to him, that he read, that he heard. He'd be reading along in the literature and something would, would spark his interest and he would write it in the book. He'd be sitting in a lecture and the professor would say something that grabbed his attention and he would write it in the book. And he filled up page after page after page of sayings and words and, and, and things that had come to him that had spoken deeply into his heart and soul and mind. And he called it the little book that understands me. And one day came when... It, He was in the depths of despair. Everything about life was falling apart. All of his thinking and his processing just weren't working. And he said if there was ever any day in which he needed his little book, this was the day. And he went to the park and he sat down on a bench and he opened up the book and he began to read. And he read the first entry and he thought, why in the world did I write that? And he flipped to the second entry and he thought, why in the world did I write that? And the third page, it was meaningless. And page after page after page, the 10th page, the 25th page, the 50th page, nothing that he read made any sense to him. It was all meaningless, garbled words. He got up and he walked home at the point of suicide. He walked into their little apartment that he and his wife and their little baby shared. Tiny little place. And his wife said to him, guess where I went today? Guess what I did today? And with absolutely no interest, really, he said, what? She said, well, I took the baby out in the stroller. And she would do that often to give him time and silence to study and work. She said, I was pushing the carriage along on on the street. And all of a sudden, the sidewalk turned to cobblestone. And he said, you can, she said, you can imagine, as I was pushing the stroller along the cobblestone, it was just about to shake the little baby to pieces. I've got to get off this, this walk, this road. And she said, I looked over and I saw a gate. And I decided I'm going to, pull, I'm going to walk into that gate. And he, he, she turned and she went through the gate. And back there was a garden. And back in that garden was a Huguenot church. They had had to hide those churches in the 16th, 17th century from persecution. And she said, I I don't know why, but on a whim, I went in. And the pastor was there. And we talked, and he told me of his son being killed in the war and the tragedy of his life and, and yet of his faith. And the more we talked, the more something was sparking in me. And he said, I don't know why, but I asked him, do you have a Bible in French? And he said, yes. And he gave me one. And Kaye said to his wife, you have a Bible in French? She said, yes. He said, give it to me. And he took it. 
said, I spent the whole night reading the Bible and exclaiming, this is the book that understands me. This is the book that understands me. At some point, we have to believe that the scriptures are God's word to us. And that the most productive thing we can do is to immerse ourselves in them humbly, expectantly, joyfully. Because it's God's word. It's God's word to us about him, about us, about the world. Father, we pray that you will help us have a new perspective about your word. New life. Give us a passion for your word because it's yours. We pray this through Christ. Amen.